25 to 28. Ephesians 4, 25 to 28. As many of you have probably done at one point in your life or another, you have tried to either successfully or unsuccessfully go on a diet. True, probably, all of us at one point or another. A good diet program, especially if it's focused on on weight loss, will tell you not to eat certain foods, right? That's the hard part of a diet. There's certain things that I can't eat. You just have to avoid those things. But a good diet program also knows that you have to eat something, right? You can't just stop eating. So they offer substitutes. In 2007, the original Eat This, Not That book came out, written by David Zinko and Matt Golding. And there have been many additions to this since then, but its main premise is you'll eat better, you'll feel better, and you'll lose weight if you eat some things instead of other things. Now, the cover of this book, the swap there is actually eat a Big Mac instead of a Whopper. I don't know about you, but that's a diet I could get behind. (laughs) I'm not sure if I actually would advocate for this. I, I haven't read it, I haven't done it. But, but the idea is what we're going for this morning. It's potentially, the, the, the concept is potentially a good one for a, for a diet plan or for your physical health. And the concept is also here good for your spiritual health. We could say, as Paul will tell us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32, in the same way, do this, not that. Do this. Not that. What we see in verses 25 to 32, where we're going to be this Sunday and then next Sunday as well, this is the practical application that Paul draws out from the spiritual truth that he's already taught in verses 17 to 24. We covered those in the last couple weeks. That was the spiritual truth. Here now he's applying that and he's saying, because of that, now this. Do this, not that. Why? Because he's already told us you are this, not that. Right? You are new, you're not old. Verse 25 Therefore, right? So the practical application comes on the heels of the spiritual instruction. You are a new creature in Christ. You are not old. That sin, that old nature is gone. We still battle with the flesh, but that old nature of sin is gone. Therefore, John MacArthur says the only reliable evidence of a person's being saved is not a past experience of receiving Christ, but a present life that reflects Christ. So here with specific application, Paul is telling us, you can't lie. You can't get angry. You can't steal and still claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We saw this a little bit. That's why we read earlier in 1 John chapter 2 and 3. We saw this there, 1 John 3 verses 4 through 9. We saw that habitual sin as a steady practice, that's just incompatible with the life of Christ. It's incompatible of a follower of Jesus Christ. See, we do not add Christ to a life of sin. A lot of people frame salvation or Christianity like that, right? I got a little Jesus in my life. Okay, whatever. 
But you can't just add Christ to a life of sin. No, Christ changes you from a life of sin to a life of righteousness. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In that context, he's talking about money, but the principle applies elsewhere as well. You cannot serve two masters. Today in verses 25 to 28, we'll cover specifically lying, anger, and stealing. Next week, we'll look at verses 29 to 32. And here in these, in these verses, Paul uses this, this do this, not that. And he gives us several examples. And I think, I want to be clear, the, the examples that he covers today is not some sort of all-inclusive list. That he says, hey, as long as you've got lying, anger, and stealing figured out, you're good. Don't worry about the rest. No, that's not what he's saying. I think he probably points these out specifically because, remember, he's writing to the church of Ephesus. He knew them. And he knew these might be some things they struggle with or maybe had struggled with before they came to Christ. And so he's telling them as an example, do this, not that, in these specific sins. And then also make sure you do that in the other areas of your life as well. Before we get into these sins specifically, I want to offer just three bird's eye observations for for each of these. And I've summarized these by three words. The first one is substitution. You'll see as we go through verses 25 to 28, the lying, the anger, the stealing, you'll see that Paul does not just say don't. We sometimes focus on that, don't we, in our Christian life. All these things that I can't do. But Paul says don't, but he follows up each don't with a do. Do this instead. We do not go from evil to neutral. We go from evil to good. And so substitution has to be something that we take into consideration. The second bird's eye view observation is relation. Each example that he gives here in verses 25 to 28 is connected to others. There's no individual thing going on here. It's always connected to other people. It will always affect other people. Look at verse 25. He says, speak the truth. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That's the church. Meaning your lying and your truth speaking will have an impact, not just on you personally, but will have an impact on the church. Verses 26 to 27, he says, nor give place to the devil. He's saying, give the devil no access. That relationship, keep that one far away. Don't give him access. Verse 28, he talks about those in need. So instead of creating need by stealing, meet needs in others by giving. So there's always a relationship that is in mind here when Paul says it's not just about you, it's about your connection with others. Your life change or your lack of life change will always affect everyone. The third bird's eye view observation is motivation. Motivation. Each one of these exhortations and examples he gives to us, there is a proper motivation that comes with it. Why speak the truth? Because we are members of one another. You know, America may run on Duncan, but the church 
runs on the truth. And we have to have that. Why speak the truth? Because we're members of one another. Why no sinful anger? Verses 26 and 27. So you don't give place to the devil. That's the motivation. Why work hard and not steal? Verse 28. To be a blessing to others. To give to those in need. So there's always a motivation behind this. We're never just, as a Christian, we're never just doing things. What'd you do today? I just do them. That's how kids operate, right? I've asked my boys that several times after they've done something that maybe isn't the smartest thing to do. Why did you do that? I don't know. That's how kids operate, right? But as Christians, we always know why we are doing what we're doing. We We do it with intention. We do it with purpose. And so Paul here is giving us a motivation for why we do this and not that. So I want to look here at these three specific examples of life change, of transformation here in verses 25 to 28. The first one we cover is our words, our words in verse 25. He says, therefore, stemming from what he's talked about in the previous verses, he says, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This first one deals with our words because the old nature has been put off and the new nature has been put on. We are to put away lying and put on the speaking of truth. The Greek word for lying here is interesting. It's the word pseudo. Pseudo. We use that in English, don't we? We use it as a prefix. When you say pseudo, and then you say something after it, whatever comes after it, that pseudo negates, right? For instance, you could have a pseudonym. What is that? It's a fake name. It's a false name. You could study a pseudoscience. Well, what's that? It's kind of a non-scientific science. So that pseudo negates that. Here, Paul's using the word pseudo to refer to anything that is false, any form of lying, any form of dishonesty. It could be the bald-faced lie that you just know is a lie, or, or it could be that just, you know, seemingly innocuous small word of gossip. No big deal. It could be giving false testimony in court, you know, where your hand is on the Bible, and you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but yet you lie under oath. It could be that. It could also be just, you know, exaggerating a story slightly that we think is no big deal. Could be false excuses, untrue hearsay, rumors, little white lies, misinformation that is meant to deceive. You could do that in person. We we do sometimes, right? We do that in person. We could also do this. This is one area that uh, Paul might not have had in mind back then where we sometimes lie or, or are involved in falsehood, social media, those types of things, you know, sharing an unproven story or an undocumented piece of information on Facebook or Instagram or something like that. We have to be careful, especially when we come to political seasons. If we're not careful, a lot of our political ranting is much more pseudo than it is true. We got to check our sources. We got to make sure we're speaking the truth and not just blabbing what everyone else has blabbed. You know, this, this pseudo here could also be spiritual as well. So what do you mean? Do we sometimes spiritually not speak the truth? We do. We have to be careful. Doctrinal fallacies, untruths, spiritual misinformation. I would say especially, speak the truth at all times, but maybe especially when we speak of spiritual things. 
You know, there is enough spiritual disinformation or misinformation out there. We don't need to add anything to it. There is plenty of that going on. Plenty of it that is even couched in encouragement or in, in good little statements or slogans or things like that, but you think about it and you say, well, that's, that's not even true. We need to be cautious that when we speak spiritual truth, it's actually truth. I'll give you a couple examples that are prevalent. Somebody will say something like, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not true. Sounds nice, doesn't it? But it's not true. If God never gave you more than you can handle, why would you ever need him? Because you can handle it, right? Here's another one kind of in that same line. I've seen this one a lot on Facebook, social media recently. Some, a phrase like this, you are enough. You've always been enough. No, you're not. If you're enough, you don't need God. If you're enough, why did Jesus die on the cross for your sins? If you're enough, why, why do we cast all our cares upon him? Because he cares for us. You're not enough. You've never been enough. God is enough. So we have to be careful. My, my point in bringing those up is not to rant about that, but we need to be careful that we don't get drawn into sloganeering that's actually not true because it can draw people away. See, lying was the original trick of Satan in the Garden of Eden, was it not? Yea, hath God really said? He didn't say that. He, you shall not surely die. That's why Jesus comes along later in John 8, and he says, you guys, you Pharisees, you're like your father, the devil. He is a liar, and he is the father of lies. And when we lie, when we give falsehood, what do we look like? We look like him. And there's a serious price to pay for somebody who is categorized or, or defined as a liar. Revelation 21 verse 8 says that all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 22 verses 14 and 15, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. There is a steep price to pay. To be a liar is to a liar. Categorized by lying is to be in darkness and to be destroyed. And when we lie, when we propagate falsehood, we look a whole lot more like Satan than we do like our heavenly father. Draw your eyes down to chapter five, verse one, if you would. Chapter 5, verse 1, this verse kind of hangs over this whole section, both what comes before and what comes after. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Why are we doing some things and not doing other things? Be imitators of God as dear children. Why shouldn't we lie? Because we look like children of the devil and not children of our true heavenly father. So like a son often imitates his father, we are to imitate God because he is our father. We are his children. So since lying imitates Satan, what would it be that would make us imitators of God? Paul tells us, verse 25, put away lying. It makes you look like Satan. 
Instead, imitate God by, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Speak truth. Paul quotes here, Zechariah 8.16. Zechariah says, speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Paul's saying here, you want to look like God? You want to imitate God? Put away the false and focus on the true. Put away the false from your lips and focus on the true. How do we do that? Well, in order to speak the truth from the mouth, you first have to have the truth in your heart. Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Fill the heart, fill the mind with truth so that when you speak, that's what comes out. That's what you speak. Now, Paul's already drawn our attention to this just a few verses earlier. Look at 4.15 again. Ephesians 4.15, he already told us, speak the truth. And he told us even how to do it. Speak the truth in what? Love. Speak the truth in love. The church thrives on truth and it thrives on love. Truth and love together. And then in verse 25, as I've kind of already pointed out, we must, why must we speak the truth? Because we are members one of another. We do not, we never will live in a vacuum, an empty place where no one else is, where we somehow think we exist alone and my choices and my decisions and what I, what I think and what I do only affects me. We do not live in that place. That place does not exist. Romans 12, 5 says, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually we are members of one another. There's always a connection. So as members of one another, Paul says, there is no place for false words in the true church. There is no place for false words in the true church because falsehood only tears apart. Speak the truth. That's our words. Let's look at the next one, verse 26 and 27, our wrath. 26 and 27, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Verse 26 is a, is a very unique verse because we've always been told, right? And we, our parents have told us, and it's good advice. Don't get angry. Get that anger under control. Don't be angry. Yet you read verse 26 and it tells you what? Be angry. But then verse 31, it says, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger be put away from you. What gives? What's going on here? We're supposed to be angry and not be angry. Well, if that's the case, if we are told in one place to be angry and told in another place not to be angry, there must be two different types of anger that are in discussion here. Would you agree? Seems like a plausible conclusion. Is there a good anger and a bad anger? Well, yes, there is. Actually, there's kind of three types of anger. Now, I want to kind of clarify this a little bit. There is good anger. There is good anger out of control, and there is bad anger. And I think he speaks to all three of these here. Your good anger, your good anger out of control, and bad anger. In verse 26, he's talking about good anger. Why? Do we know that? Because he says, be angry. He's obviously not telling us to get into unrighteous anger. He's telling us to be angry. This is good anger anger. This is righteous indignation. It is commanded and it is commended and it is not a sin. 
Kent Hughes says that proper anger is a sign of spiritual life and health. Proper anger, a sign of spiritual life and health. And we see this pattern by God himself. Throughout scripture, God is is perfectly righteous in his indignation, perfectly righteous in his wrath, in his judgment that he gives out. We see this in many places. Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 1 Kings 11 verses 9 and 10. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel and because he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. God was angry with Solomon. Chuck Swindoll says that there are three things that God gets angry about specifically. Sinful behavior, moral corruption, unjust circumstances. God has a right to be angry about those three things. Turn in your Bibles back to the Old Testament. I want to show you a place, 2 Kings. 2 Kings 17. Show you a place here where we see this kind of all come to one spot. Second Kings 17, 14 to 18. This is the time when God is bringing judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria is carrying them off captive. 2 Kings 17, 14. Nevertheless, they would not hear, talking about northern kingdom Israel, but stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused, watch this, this is how bad they got. They caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire. That would have been the child sacrificing of Molech. They practiced witchcraft and soothsaying and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Verse 18, therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. They disobey, they worship idols, they mock God, they sacrifice their children to false gods. Does God have a right to be angry at that? Absolutely. He has a right to be angry, and it says he is very angry at that. You know, as God's children, as imitators of the Father, as it says in Ephesians 5, 1, that is the type of thing that should anger us as well. Sin 
should anger us. Both our own sin and the sin that we see around us. The sinful behavior, the moral corruption, the unjust circumstances. And so when Paul says to be angry and not sin, you be angry and not sin when you are angry for the same things that makes God angry. That's important. To be angry and not sin is when we are angry for the same things that make God angry. We should be a little bit stirred up. Our righteous indignation should be a little stirred up when God's name is dishonored. When immorality rules in our world. When good is called evil and evil is called good. We should be a little stirred up by that. Our righteous indignation should swell a little bit when we hear that wicked people want to pass a, a ballot initiative that legalizes abortion up to birth in the state of Ohio. That angers God. And you know what? It should anger us too. That's to be angry and not sin. Is because God is a little upset with that. And we as his children should be a little upset as well. So sometimes I think we need a little bit more righteous indignation coursing through our veins. We sometimes push that to the side too much and we adopt kind of a laissez-faire attitude that, you know, just lets the wicked people do what they want and tramp all over innocent lives. Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Be angry. Do not sin, but be angry about what's going on. And we need somebody like, the, like, like William Wilberforce in 18th century England whose righteous indignation was stirred up about the evils of slavery. And he would not rest until slavery was abolished. And guess what? It was abolished in England. We need a little bit of the righteous indignation of Martin Luther who was stirred up in 16th century Germany because the Catholic Church had a stranglehold on the truth or their version of the truth. And he got a little stirred up about it and he did something about it, and God used him to break the stranglehold of the Catholic Church on false religion. We need a little bit of that, right? It's high time we get a little stirred up about the evil of our day. We need a William Wilberforce. We need a Martin Luther in Ohio that is angry for what God is angry for. We have opportunities to express that. You know, we should be a little stirred up and let our voices be heard. The March for Life is coming in on October 6th. If you want to be a part of that, please be a part of that. Just show, show our state and show, show people. We're a little stirred up about this. This is not right. God is angry about this and so are we. We should be stirred up to vote against this abortion ballot initiative. November 7th, they're early voting. Get out and Vote. Because it angers God, it should anger us too. We've put some signs in the back that are available. Anita went and picked these up uh, this week. Vote no on issue one. Protect children. Vote no on issue one. Protect parents' rights. Is that appropriate action? It is appropriate action. It's action we should take. Because God is angry about this and we should be as well. Righteous indignation should lead us to fervent prayer and to appropriate action.
Righteous indignation should lead us to fervent prayer and appropriate action. That is to be angry and not to sin. A march for life, appropriate action. Voting down a ballot initiative, appropriate action. Putting a sign out in your front yard, appropriate action. Don't just be angry, do something. Now, here's the caveat. You can't go down to the street corner and start yelling slurs and obscenities at people that drive by who think differently than you do. You can't spread lies to gain an advantage. You can't go burn down a Planned Parenthood building. That's anger that has turned into what? Sin, right? That's anger that is out of control. That's good anger, but it's, you've lost control of it. The Bible tells us here, be angry, but do not sin. Don't let your righteous indignation become unrighteous destruction. That's the difference. And the verse to keep in mind here is Romans 12, 19. Write that one down, Romans 12, 19. He says, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, here's the thing. Only God can take vengeance because only he can respond in that way. He can respond in ways that we cannot respond. He can respond in ways that we should not respond. Only God can take out the wicked. Only God can bring their wickedness on their own wicked heads. Why can God do that? By right of creation. By right of creation, he can do that, and it would be perfectly just. I can't do that. Why? Because I didn't create. I don't have that right. And one way my good anger becomes sin is when I take vengeance into my own hands. I take that right from God and act like it is my right. Paul says, don't go there. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on that wrath. You better turn that type of anger over to God. You better deal with it quickly or else it will fester and it will burn until it explodes like a volcano. And verse 27, the devil will have gained an opportunity to ruin you and to mar the name of Christ. Righteous anger or indignation is good, but you better be careful because it can get out of control quickly. We've probably all experienced that. Warren Wearsby says, it is difficult for us to practice a truly holy anger or righteous indignation because our emotions are tainted by sin and we do not have the same knowledge that God has in all matters. Righteous anger is good, but be careful it can get out of control. However, unrighteous anger is always bad and will damage everything in its path, like the lava from that volcano. And that's what he's talking about here in verse 31, when he says, let that anger and that wrath be put away from you. And I think he's also referencing that some here in verses 26 to 27. Unrighteous anger is not patterned after what God is angry about. Unrighteous anger is anger for personal offenses. And that personal offense often turns into wrath. It turns into vengeance. It turns into a personal vendetta. Guess what? That's always wrong. Let that wrath, let that anger be put away from you. Why? Because it does not imitate God. It never solves the problem. It only hurts you and others. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on that wrath. Don't let that one fester. If you do, the devil will have a foothold. I have a foothold in your life. 
He'll have a foothold in your church. You will be known as the person who flies off in a rage at any personal slight. You know that anger opens doors that you never thought would open? Anger makes you do things you never thought you would do. There are people in prison today who did things they thought they'd never do. Why? Uncontrolled anger. Anger will open doors that you never thought would open. The Roman poet Horace said, anger is momentary insanity. Unrighteous anger is a lack of the fruit of the spirit that we call self-control. It does not, unrighteous anger does not represent someone controlled by the spirit. James said in, in 1 verses 19 and 20, he said, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Why? Because the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Be careful. Those quick to anger will ruin relationships in your life and it will hurt the church. People quick to anger will be, will be quick to cause division and strife. That's not what we are called to as believers, is it? What are we called to? Forgiveness, making peace, dwelling with one another in love, not anger. You say, well, that's, that's a lot to take in there in just a couple verses. We've got good anger and bad anger, and sometimes I think I'm caught right in the middle. How do I know if, if my anger is righteous or unrighteous? How do I know if it's good anger or bad anger? Let me give you two pieces of advice. One, check the root. Two, check the fruit. One, check the root of your anger. Is it anger that imitates God's anger over sin? If it is, probably righteous anger. Or is it anger because of selfish motives or personal offense? If it is, it's probably unrighteous anger. So check the root. Also check the fruit of your anger. Does the anger cause God's honor to be defended and his people to be protected? If it does, it's probably righteous anger. Or does your anger cause others to be hurt and the church to be damaged? If that's the case, it's probably unrighteous anger. Check the root and check the fruit of your anger. Aristotle said, anyone can become angry, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way, this is not easy. I think he's right. We must have the Holy Spirit guiding that, guiding our anger, guiding us as we respond to different things. Let's look lastly here at our work. Chapter four, verse 28. Our words, our wrath, and now our work. Verse 28, he says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. This is probably the most practical illustration, the most visible application of transformation here. He basically says, stop stealing, start working. Don't get much more blatant than that. Stop stealing, start working. There's no place for theft in the life of a Christian. Commandment number eight in Exodus 20:15 establishes the right to private property. That's something that everyone should respect. And here Paul says, you can't do that as a believer. You can work hard, you can't steal. The Greek word for steal is klepto. 
Sound familiar? It's where we get the word kleptomaniac from. Kleptomaniac. A kleptomaniac is someone who steals for the fun of it. Listen to this. This was intriguing. I found this this week. Here's how the Mayo Clinic defines kleptomania. You ready? This is good. Kleptomania is an impulse control disorder that results in an irresistible urge to steal. The cause of kleptomania remains unknown, but risk factors include a family history of kleptomania or other impulse control disorders. It occurs more often in women. <laughs> kleptomania is a serious disorder that causes an irresistible urge to steal items that aren't needed and are usually of little value. Consequences can include job loss, financial penalties, and trouble with the law. No cure exists. But treatment with talk therapy and medications such as antidepressants may help end the cycle of compulsive stealing. Isn't that so indicative of our world? That we've turned sin into an impulse control disorder. Paul has a method for a cure. Did you notice it? Stop stealing. <laughs> Don't do that anymore. Control yourself and start working. A few weeks ago, I rode my bike down to the uh, park in the, in the early morning, and I do that quite often, and rode my bike down there, parked my bike under a pavilion, go walk around the loop there and pray and just, you know, enjoy quiet. There's only a few people out there, see the same people every time I go down there, fine. This time, though, a few weeks ago, I parked my bike under the pavilion, I went around a walk, came back, looked at there, and my bike was gone. I thought, you have got to be kidding me. You got to wake up early around here to beat the bike thieves. I cannot believe. So I walked around the park a little bit and tried to, you know, see maybe somebody moved it or dumped it or whatever. I don't know. I was, I was so upset. I tell you what, that was anger that was sin when that happened. That was not do not be angry and do not sin. Because here's the thing. I had just fixed my bike. It had been broken the whole time, all summer, because my seat broke. And I ordered the part, and just a couple weeks before that, I had fixed the seat. So I thought to myself, whoever stole my bike, I hope the seat breaks on them again. <laughs> I had to walk home. <laughs> I cannot believe this. I thought Bucyrus, you know, was this nice little quaint town. Tell you what. Well, here's the rest of the story. A couple of days later, back at the park, I walk by the maintenance shed there by the bathrooms, and I look in, and there's my bike. So I walk in there, and there's a lady sitting there. I said, I think that's my, that's my bike. She said, oh, yeah, I found it down in the pavilion and brought it up here. I thought somebody had lost it. <laughs> I said, I walked home. <laughs> Fortunately, it's not that far. So that, that, that thief story, right? I, I had in my mind, I had this hypothetical thief that if I ever found it, I told my wife, I said, look on Facebook Marketplace and see if you find somebody selling my bike. And I was going to, you know, I was going to get that thief if I ever saw somebody on my bike. Well, that story had a good ending, but that happens, doesn't it? They're, they're very public thieves that live in our world, whether they're bike thieves or umbrella thieves. Have you ever had, been, in the, been the victim of an umbrella thief? And you think you're going to have an umbrella to not have to walk through the rain and somebody's taking it? Pickpockets, porch bandits, those who steal generators out of garages, things like that. You know, there's private thieves too, embezzlers of money, office thieves, those who misrepresent time, those who cheat on taxes. Theft is a, a real thing, isn't it? The respect for private property isn't as strong as it should be. If you've ever watched Aladdin, you find yourself doing what? 
cheering for the thief, that he gets away. In one of the songs, Aladdin says, gotta eat to live, gotta steal to eat. Paul says as a believer, you can't do that. Uh, You can't go there. That is incompatible with Christ. And he gives the cure for us here. He says, stop stealing, start working. Why? Because God has created us to work. You realize that? He has created us to work. Work was not part of the curse of sin. But Paul says we are here, we are, verse 28, let him labor, working with his hands what is good. The natural created use of the hands is to do what? To work. Not to steal. That's the corruption of sin. But the natural created use of the hands is to work. That's why Paul comes along in Colossians 3 and he says, work as unto the Lord and not unto men. There's a much higher reason that we work. I think Paul here probably knows that, that theft was very common in that era. Theft was very common in Ephesus. And some of the Christians now may have even been thieves before they knew Christ. And he's telling them here, that can't define you as a Christian. You cannot be a thieving Christian. You cannot be a murderous Christian. You cannot be a homosexual Christian. You can't, sin cannot be the adjective that defines the noun if you are a believer. And so he says here, you've got to stop that. You have to do something else. Take all the effort and the energy that you put into thievery and put it into what? Honest labor. It takes work to steal, doesn't it? He says, take all that energy and put it into honest labor. Do what's right. Now, that's the testimony of Zacchaeus. Remember him, the wee little thief? Climbed the tree. Talked about him a couple weeks ago. He met Jesus and his life was turned upside down. The power of Christ turns the taker into the giver. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Theft takes from others for your own benefit. But honest labor benefits you and then blesses God and others. Theft causes people to be in need. But honest labor gives us the opportunity to help those in need. You see that, the motivation? He says, do what is good. Let him who stole steal no longer. Rather, let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. One of the blessings of work is the ability to give that your work provides. The New Testament repeatedly calls us as believers to generous giving. Enabled by what? What God has given to us. One of the ways that God has enabled you to give is that he has enabled you to work. To not give then is to reject part of the blessing of your work. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, it is old nature for us to keep or to take for ourselves. It is new nature to want to give. And Paul says there must be a difference as a believer. There must be a change. The transformation of salvation takes us from stealing to sharing like it did for Zacchaeus. That's radical. That's imitating God as dear children. And that's what Christ can do in your life. That's what Christ has done in many lives. He's taken us from the stealer to the sharer. From the taker to the giver. That's the power of God in our lives. According to John 8, 44 and John 10, 10, Satan is a liar, a murderer, and a thief. And when we act like that, we look like him. 
There is no hope for Satan, though, is there? His doom is sure. His destiny is sealed. Judas, the Bible says, was a liar and a thief. And after he betrayed Christ, he went and he hung himself. No hope for him, is there? His time is over. You say, well, is there any hope for liars, for thieves, for angry people? There is. See, when Jesus was crucified, as you know, there was a thief on either side of him, wasn't there? He was crucified in between thieves as if he himself was a thief. The one thief looked at Jesus and he mocked him. If you're the son of God, you know, get down from there and save yourself. And for a time, the other thief did the same. But at some point there, God worked on his heart. He had a change of heart. Because he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus tell that thief? He told him, today you will be with me in paradise. See, the hope for thieves is Christ. The hope for liars is Christ. The hope for angry people is Christ. Now that thief was at the very end of his life. He didn't have time to then share on this earth like Zacchaeus did. But you know what he is doing? He's sharing in all the glory of eternity with Christ, his Savior. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then lying, righteous, unrighteous anger, and stealing should never be a part of your life. You need to stop that and start speaking the truth. Be angry, but do not sin. Start working hard for God and for others. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, you do not know Christ, then lying and anger and stealing are probably a part of your life. And you might think nothing of them. There's hope for you. Like the thief on the cross, you look at Christ and you say, I believe, I repent of my sins, I believe in you as Savior for forgiveness of my sins and for my soul's salvation. If that is you, then today can be the day of salvation because there is hope in Christ. Turn to Christ. Let's pray.